we can all make the assumption that Manchester City's title is done. Question is, who comes next? Are Tottenham the best of the rest or did Liverpool just win whilst at half pace? Is that their championship stroke second place credentials done? Manchester United, their wobble, is it much more than that? While at the other end of the Premier League, your guess is as good as mine. Anyone from Bournemouth down could still make that bottom interesting. We'll also talk Champions League and Russian plastic bags without the recycling. All that and more to come on the Totally Football Show. I'm Caroline Barker, in for James Richardson this week, and with me, Daniel Storey, Football 365 leg end. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, of Premier League TV. Hello. Is that, that the official line we have to give you? Uh, that's now my name by Deepal, I think. So. Is it? Yeah, yeah. And Sasha Gorinov, the Totally Football Show's very own Russo-Scouse hybrid. Good morning, that's, that's me. Probably a bit more scouse after yesterday. I went down to Southampton uh, to watch Liverpool play. Uh, but yeah, hopefully I'll contribute something useful today for a change. Let's start at the top then. Uh, Wembley, Spurs, Arsenal, London, Derby. Going the way of the Spurs? Yeah, it was it was a slightly disappointing first half, I thought, in that Spurs basically came out and do what they do in every big home game, which is go for this very early rampage. They scored very early against United. They scored early against Borussia Dortmund. They scored early against Liverpool and they tried to do the same against Arsenal. But Arsenal kind of countered them straight away and probably had the two big sort of big chances on in terms of creating attacks and kind of stumbled on the counter. But it made Spurs go, hang on a minute, mm. we can't afford to push forward here so we're just going to go for this measured control and wait for Arsenal to open up and they did it probably six times in the game. Spurs, I think Opta said Spurs missed five big chances by their definition. Kane scored probably the hardest of his. It could have been embarrassing for Arsenal. Um, it's their same away problems. I think seven wins in 26 Premier League away games, which is dreadful. They've got fewer away points than Southampton this season. Well, we can pour scorn on, on Arsenal. I can say that coming from a Spurs supporting family, Sasha. But you were there, that, that whole kind of issue over starting fast, mm. getting at them early. It didn't turn out to be an issue for Spurs, but could have been their undoing. But uh, I thought from Spurs, it was very um, sort of mature, the fact that they kind of went, right, we're going to get picked off here. Let's stop and mm. take stock. I think it's a sign of a very mature team. Uh, for, for, for Arsenal, I thought in the first half, um, they are actually very disciplined. I thought they did very well in midfield with Nene and Jaka. Um, and as experience has shown, you have to play those two holding midfielders uh, against Spurs at Wembley because, for example, Liverpool tried to go just with Henderson um, and they got destroyed. United tried to play with Matic and Pogba doing something. They got destroyed. You need two players in that zone. However, after half-time, you know, they make one mistake. It's not even really a mistake. I think it's just a great goal. And Arsenal just fold. And Wenger said after the game that the goal destabilised us completely. Yes, it did. Um, so after 20 minutes of that, he makes the substitution. He takes off that extra holding midfielder. And this is when Spurs can completely run riot. Um, they don't. And uh, at the end of the game, we saw what happens when... Uh, okay, you can't give Harry Kane two chances, but you can give Lacazette two chances. And he is a striker who scored one in 13. This was his big chance. He came on, he went centre-forward. They pushed the Bomiang out wide. He didn't take his chance. The weird thing about Arsenal is that they seem to be eternally surprised at conceding a goal. Yeah. It's that one goal completely destabilises everything that they do. And yet we've seen this in probably 80% of their away games this season. So it's amazing how Wenger can consistently say after the game, yeah, yeah, that goal destabilises. It's, it's, it's an odd thing. Um, plan for that. Practice for that. You know, practice, teach your players about mentally responding to, to adversity. They just don't seem to be able to do it. And every every time they win, Wenger says, well, that showed we, was mentally, we were mentally strong to come back from a game. Actually, it would show that they were mentally stronger if they came back within the same game, not after a week's break. 
It's just ludicrous. Positives for Arsenal, if we can drag any out, in. They nearly got a draw. That's pretty much the biggest positive I think they should take from that game because for, for all the issues they had in the match, it was still 1-0 going into the final moments and they had two very, very good chances to get a draw from it. Uh, I, I'm searching for positives. I'm going to go back to a negative, unfortunately. But after the Everton game, it sort of felt like a, a new era for Arsenal, in a way, a little mini-era perhaps because it's only one match and it was only a couple of signings. But it, it just felt a little bit different um, watching Arsenal play against Everton, certainly in terms of going forward and the new personnel there. But when you look at the performances of Mkhitaryan and Aubameyang in that Tottenham game, then that seemed very much like old Arsenal. And having watched Mkhitaryan's career at Old Trafford, um, I'm intrigued to see how he gets on at Arsenal. It feels like a much better fit for him. Um, it feels like a, a more comfortable role that he's going to play in that side and, and the relationship with the players around him feels more natural to me as, as well. However, that was a very Mkhitaryan at Manchester United performance from him in, in a really important game. Yeah, and, and the thing about creating this counter-attacking team, after the game, Wenger was asked about Johnny Evans and he said, well, we couldn't afford Johnny Evans. Um, that's not true. They could afford Johnny Evans. They just didn't want to play the price West Ham were asking. Now, Arsenal's Champions League participation next season basically depends on the next four months, obviously. To, to, solve the, to try and solve the attacking issues and turn Arsenal into a counter-attacking team, you can only be a counter-attacking team if you have the ability to soak up some pressure and then hit teams on the break. If you afford five or six clear-cut chances by soaking up that pressure, it doesn't matter if you are you know, the best counter-attacking team in the world, and Arsenal weren't, by the way, on Saturday. Mm. It's just not going to work out. So to try and... I appreciate that they've made strides in the transfer market, but to do that while showing that willful ignorance of, of the defence, which, let's face it, was their biggest issue August to January anyway. It's just, it's very Arsenal. For, for a bit of Spurs love then, Sasha. I, I was just about to maybe try to find some positives in the Arsenal performance. I I, thought, I'm going to give you a positive Spurs. Yeah, Spurs. <laughs> uh, well, Spurs have had a run of three very difficult games. Yeah. Uh, they came over with, with seven points. Uh, they are in a very good sort of, as I think Pochettino called it moment, going into the Juventus game. Uh, they kept two clean sheets at home. Uh, they went to Anfield and actually gave a very good away performance against a top six team. And in the game, they probably should have won, despite all those misses and everything else. So um, I, I think they just they just feel very, very strong at the moment. And by the way, the, the one thing with that Pochettino always gets beaten uh, with about his, you know, his record against the top six away from home, Wenger, top six away from home, Mourinho, top six away from home, Maybe it's just quite difficult to play against top six away from home, so you shouldn't be expected to win half your games. Uh, but I think Juventus, uh, watching that game, should be quite scared. One of the big criticisms of Spurs prior to the season was that the cliche that they didn't have any squad depth. I think the big thing Pochettino will take out the weekend is that Ben Davies looks better than Danny Rose at the moment, certainly in Pochettino's eyes, given the personality issues he clearly has with Rose. Um, Davinson Sanchez looks a pretty wonderful prospect with Toby Alderweireld coming back from injury. So that's three centre-backs for two positions. I, I love that you call him a wonderful prospect in that we're all looking at his age and thinking, yeah, he is, he's he's yeah. a wonderful prospect, but he's already doing it. Yeah, and you look at Jairo Riedewald at, at, at Crystal Palace, who came from the same club as, as Sanchez. It's not easy to settle in the Premier League in your no. first season. And he has... You know he's he's he has still got a mistake in him. He's still quite raw, but he's twenty. He's a twenty-one-year-old centre back. That should be the expectation. And the other the other one is Moussa Dembele, who 
they now have Eric Dyer, uh, Dembele and Wanyama for two midfield positions. In every area, they now feel like they've got a bit of backup other than the, the striker issue. But Dembele was, was phenomenal. Watching him, you think he should be the complete midfielder. He should score goals, he should create goals. But actually, he seems to have condensed that into one incredible controlling midfielder um, and he's the best in the league at the moment it's funny you know sometimes when you're going off and doing interviews you get sent questions that are like the sort of light-hearted funny questions or whatever um, and it's the type of questions that fans had often asked to players you know who's who's the strongest opponent you've played against who's the quickest teammate and those sort of things whenever I've asked a player who's a midfielder who's the toughest opponent or who's the strongest opponent they always say Moussa Dembele you know the the players are often in the north as well They've, you know it's Manchester United players who are obviously used to playing against sort of tough opposition in their area you know you, they might automatically say like someone at City or something like that but Moussa Dembele seems to come up every single time and that's even dating back to when he was at Fulham as well has just he, has the he strength that, of him has he waggled that edge though there's always that kind of sense that he might pick up a book in get sent off something might happen that that little bit of, of bites he managed to maybe he got it out of his system at Stamford Bridge <laughs> at the end of that 2016 season <laughs> two years worth yeah, yeah. two years worth uh, so I don't think he's that been career's worth yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. well the whole club's worth I, yeah. I don't know he seemed to rein yeah. it in but still have that that, that bite the, about yeah him. controlled aggression um, and he is you know you watch him play he's basically he looks massive uh, you can't really get to the ball around him and he, when he's steaming at you I think it'd be quite frightening mm. so um, yeah I, th- I think Dembele has been um, it's going to be key probably for them in the Champions League because I think he looks like a very good Champions League player uh, that they're going to need somewhere away from home to break up attacks maybe to go to Juventus and draw nil nil you're going to need to have him you're going to need to uh, for him to have a very big game, and I think he can do it. Oh, we'll, we'll look a bit more in depth about the Champions League mm-hmm. in, in a bit, but uh, just one possible niggle negative for Spurs. Alderweire, whether he's fit or not, or whether he's on his way out or not, all these these rumours floating you around. You know what? It was really weird. After the game, um, uh, Pochettino was asked, so, you know, big time in Sanchez, so Alderweire, why? Quite an innocent question. And yeah. Pochettino just went off on one. You just completely lost it. Why are you asking me this? We won the game. Why are you doing this? It's like just an innocent question. Well, why didn't he not play? Maybe he's a little bit unfit. But he really didn't like it for some reason. So, and he didn't answer. Supposedly, he's not travelled, has he, as well, uh, no, for Juventus, which actually, I'm, I'm going to turn this on its head completely. Could it be a positive for Spurs? Because to me, he's probably, if not the best central defender in the Premier League, he's, he's certainly up there. And for Tottenham to do what they've done in recent weeks without him and now have the confidence to be able to travel to Juventus without him as well, certainly with these question marks over his future, that's probably a positive for Spurs, really. The, the form of, of Sanchez and Davies, it, it, what it does do is it sends a message to the rest of those Spurs players that nobody can be bigger than the club anymore. You know, If you're Danny Rose and you kick up a fuss and do an interview and say, my heart's in Manchester, effectively, uh, and I should be paid more money... Pochettino can say, well, okay, well, I've got someone to step in your place. And not only will they step in your place, they'll look as good as you and they will make supporters not miss you. And they will make your sale look like a palatable option for the club because we will always sell at high price because that's what Daniel Levy does. So, yeah, I mean, I don't understand why Pochettino went off on one, but it can only be good news for Spurs. You can't buy success, unless that is you're backed by Petro Billions. Just ask PSG in Man City. Well, Paddy Power have spent the big bucks buying the best tech brains to make their app better and faster than ever. Check it out for yourself by downloading it for free on Android and iPhone now. 18 plus only, begambleaware.org. Spurs done then. Given that Manchester City aren't playing in the Premier League until March, we should talk about City 5, Leicester 1 and one Aguero. How many times you want to drag out the O at the end? Again, just Pep Guardiola putting an arm around him, sticking him on a pedestal, saying what we all think about Aguero this week. 
Yeah, I, I actually, I actually think the story of that game was was how Claude Puel kind of allowed Aguero to to flourish. He started the game with three centre backs. It worked brilliantly. City were basically forced out wide, forced to cross the ball. They don't like crossing the ball at home. When they do it, they generally don't score as many goals. And then I guess Adrian Silva was injured, but he brought on Danny Simpson and went to a back four rather than to bring on Vicente Abora. And basically left them central centre of the pitch open and Aguero and De Bruyne sort of looked almost looks at each other to say, Are you sure that's what you want to do? Because that's fine by us and then they just ran right second half. And then the strangest the... tactical decision of the season. I did that game and um where we sit sort of pitch side reporting for the Premier League, you're just behind the away dugout. And um, I saw the change for the second half. A lot of teams this season would have given the right arm to be one all at half time at the Etihad and actually come back into the game after after conceding an early goal as well. Um, and then the start of the second half, they made the change. I was like, it was a bit of a strange change. I don't, I don't, don't really see why they've done that. There was no sort of word afterwards about whether Adrian Silva was injured or not either, um, which sort of led me to believe that perhaps he wasn't injured, or if he was injured, it maybe wasn't that serious because he came into the interview areas afterwards with no treatment or anything like that, still in his uh, still in his kit. But very, very quickly, it started to unravel. And then you sort of saw Michael Appleton and Claude Puel in discussions. In my mind, I was sort of thinking, I can imagine them saying to each other, well, that, that's gone well, that's... Because <laughs> <laughs> very quickly, it just... And, you know, within five, ten minutes of that second half starting, mm. they'd lost a football match. And I don't know why, because I was part of... Um, a group of people interviewing Guardiola a couple of weeks ago, um, just after Zane's injury, and he was sort of talking about, uh, in his interview with SFR France, he was talking about the sort of tactical challenges and, and, and different aspects to, to the problems that he'd have without Zane. And one of the things was that when teams do play five men in defence, like Leicester did, it forces you to go wide. And with Zane being a, a natural winger, and Bernardo Silva not being a natural winger, it loses a little bit of ability for City to stretch five-man defences, stretch them as wide as possible, ask questions down the sides, which then moves all the defence around and then leaves gaps for the for the other midfielders and the, and the centre-forwards to exploit. So I actually saw that being quite a big issue for City moving forward without Zane uh, and using Bernardo Silva wide as talented as he is. And actually, it sort of played out in the first half like that. And then obviously, when they changed the shape at half-time in the second half, there was loads and loads of gaps. And it didn't really matter that they didn't have that same ability to stretch the, the team so wide as, as they would have done with Zane and Sterling. It, it's kind of a, a stinker for me for later when I would say that Southampton did wrong in getting rid of, of Puel because it did tactically seem like a complete stuff-up, Sash. I think uh, one thing that Simpson was slightly maybe unlucky with or whether you could see the gap in class there, for De Bruyne's ball for the second goal, he hits it really early and Simpson just doesn't expect it to come in. And I think from that point onwards, I think Leicester are just psychologically broken. But there was also, I think, one thing that I saw was that Aguero got into Schmeichel's head, uh, quite obviously, on the third goal. Mm. And after that, the, the way he was approaching every time you know he was approaching goal with the ball, you could see that he's kind of looking at Schmeichel going, I got you where I want you, son. <laughs> and so I think this is, when, this is where Schmeichel shanking that, well, clearance straight to him comes into it as well because I think he's so preoccupied with where Aguero is he's kind of he loses a little bit of concentration in what he's doing and then this, the fifth one he's I mean I don't I don't, he has, I don't think he has any chance but this is Aguero going like I own this place yeah so yeah. Uh, it, yeah, I, I think swagger doesn't he yeah, yeah exactly. that swagger in his locker that when he gets into a even in the space mm -hmm. of one game he gets into a rich vein of form mm -hmm. 
there doesn't feel like anything you can yeah, do about yeah, it. Yeah, that like, wasn't even a game. He wasn't very good in the first yeah. half. Yeah. You know, that was just the second half. It's strange with Aguero, actually, because as talented as he is, as, as prolific as he is, the fact that he scored four goals at the weekend, underlining that, he's not quite looked right in recent weeks. And I, I don't know if that's because... This is a very difficult sell considering he's just scored four in the second half at the weekend. But you sort of looked at him in the first half, having had a week off as well, and he just didn't didn't seem to have that same sort of sharpness that he's had in the past. That same sort of, um, I don't know, he's very instinctive at times and he's very sharp in his movements and he's very deliberate in the things that he does. Um, and that sort of edge is, is what the defenders find difficult stopping. And he just seemed to lack that. And he has lacked it a bit in recent weeks. He's still scored goals. But there's not been many sort of times where you've looked at him um, and things that he's done and thought, that's a classic Aguero moment. Only Aguero could do that. The fourth goal at the weekend was definitely that moment. But before that, the types of goals he was scoring, the types of moves he was making when, when the players were in crossing positions and things, he just didn't seem quite right. Whether those four goals now elevate his confidence or whatever was missing and, and bring him back there. But when Guardiola says... I want to rest him, but I can't. I could sort of see why you would think that because it does look like maybe there's a, there's quite a lot of mileage in his legs this season, which in past years he's had more injury problems and had more rest maybe. Maybe it's something along those lines. But yeah, it's just remind not me never to get you in to manage my five-a-side team. <laughs> I mean, he's all right. There's only four goals. I don't know. The second half he was good. He was back, he was back to what you'd That's expect. Right, That's what I mean. It is a bit of a hard sell after scoring four. I, I, I do acknowledge that. But yeah. uh, Just briefly, because we are kind of hoping to rattle through most of the, the top of the table. For Kevin De Bruyne, did you, did you hear Pep saying this afterwards, that to win the Ballon d'Or, he's got to get a few more titles, especially the Champions League. Do you see him doing that with City? Do you see him doing that this, this season? I think more importantly, I don't see Kevin De Bruyne, of all those Ballon d'Or competitors, I see him probably caring the least about winning it. Yeah. Um, he is a team Which player. kind of why we like him. Yeah, exactly right. Absolutely. He has understated his brilliance. Um, and... I mean, he he will obviously win titles at City. They're the Champions League's favourites this season because because PSG have bought, drawn Real Madrid. Um, I don't think they'll win that competition, but I can see him winning the next three Premier League titles. Um, I also don't think he's the kind of player to push for a move elsewhere. He seems particularly happy where he is, kind of Harry Kane style. Um, yeah, he's obviously a fabulous footballer. We're, we're almost running out of superlatives. He's, he assists three goals, Aguero scores four, and it all just feels like pop and crisps, really. I actually think he can win the Champions League this year because by the time the quarterfinals come round, City would have won the league. I think potentially they could play reserves in the Manchester derby, which is between the two legs of the uh, uh, quarterfinals. I could see Guardiola rotating him out of the Premier League games and into the Champions League games. And this ability to focus on that competition, I think, is going to benefit City greatly, especially as I think there would be three or four other um, English clubs in the quarters and they would still be scrapping for the top four so that they wouldn't be able to focus on Champions League solely. Who was the last redhead to win the Ballon d'Or? Go on. Mm. Matthias Sammer? Yeah. Wow. 1996? Six, yeah, Euros. You won the Euros, yeah. yeah. Sorry, just thought I'd bring up the light entertainment. <laughs> just thought I'd bring up something they discussed beforehand. So it didn't look like, you know, a magnificent player, though. Absolutely yeah. magnificent player. What a pleasure to watch during Euro 96. Just ran the Germany team. Yeah, yeah but, see, you might have the stats, but he's got the content. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Kevin De Bruyne, though, um, that first assist at the weekend... Sometimes when you watch a football match, you sort of like when you when you're quite high up. Say you're in the third tier and you, you have a view of the of the game. How posh are you? No, no, but, uh, <laughs> just, just for argument's sake. Yeah. <laughs> Whichever you choose your tier, you know. Um, we don't do it. We just get put whatever our, our names are. But anyway, um, 
some of the Champions League matches at City, you, you get put high up if you're if you're not in the in the written press, um, and you get a view of the match which is totally different to to low down, totally different to one of the players on the pitch, um, and you just see tactical shapes and you see defensive lines and you see you see the match. You know, you, you actually are watching the the tactical vision of the game from the two managers. Kevin De Bruyne must have a little guy in his ear who's sat in the third tier, seeing these gaps, seeing these spaces, because for the life of me, I did not see that first pass. I didn't even think it was on. And then to it to be able to not only see it, but in that split second, execute it so perfectly that he basically set up two players to score, Aguero and Sterling. Yeah. He'd obviously done that particular move in training a lot. But to be able to do that, what a quality that is. Because it was a pass the other week for Fernandinho as well that... How has he seen that? You know, he's got an even worse view than you sat in the stand, and a, and a, a far worse view than the the guy sat in the in the third tier with the view of the pitch. I just find it incredible that he that he sees these things, let alone executes them. The, the vision is amazing. And in, in addition to this, as in addition to this as well, he and Guardiola has mentioned this a number of times after games. He has absolutely unbelievable work rate, and I think Guardiola describes it as humble, as in he he basically runs his socks off. I mean, the first time I saw him close up do this was uh, the two one derby win in Manchester last season. When he came off um, in the closing stages after like a long bursting run where I think he hit the post, he could hardly stand. And this is the most talented player on the pitch. And I think this is what you should be showing academy kids. So this guy has the world at his feet. He can see, as you said, the pitch from the third tier. And yet look at how hard he works. There was a really, really nice moment in the home win over Spurs where he was basically pressing, pressing, pressing. And I think it was Raheem Sterling who hadn't quite pressed enough. And you saw De Bruyne look round to Guardiola as if he was like telling tales to a teacher. And, Are you going to tell him? Because he's not running as hard as me. He's not... And that's it. He is just Guardiola's disciple, isn't he? I, I momentarily forgot that I'm supposed to speak at, at points, but I'm very much enjoying <laughs> listening to you all. But let's just, just briefly then touch on, I say I want to touch briefly on, on Liverpool and Manchester United if we're looking at the top of the table. Because, of course, the two teams are up against down the other end of the table. Such fantastic results for, for Newcastle. But Southampton losing to Liverpool. Not a vintage Liverpool display, but that's more of the Saints making, yeah, isn't the, the, it, Sash? Liverpool didn't have to play particularly well. Uh, they, I mean, you go to someone like Southampton, a struggling team, they make a mistake in the first five five minutes, you're 1-0 up, you don't really have to do much. Having said that, I think Liverpool did a little bit less than doing enough because Karius had to make two very big saves uh, in the first uh, in the first half uh, before Liverpool applied the coup de grace and made it 2-0. I actually took an advantage point in watching the game. I watched the first half from behind the goal, uh, from the way end, and then I watched the second half from behind the dugouts. And in the first half, it was quite nice to see the way this Liverpool defence worked because Karius, again, had a very good game. And when he was coming out to block, I think it was Hojbjörg's so one-on-one, he, like... You were looking at thinking, yeah, he's saving that. So he was no longer this hologram of autumn where everything just went through him. Mm. He was big. He came out really, really well. He made no mistakes in the entire game. Also, Virgil van Dijk really, really enjoyed himself. And basically, every ball that came towards Liverpool box, it was like his personal responsibility. He was going to win every header, make every clear and sweep up behind everybody. They were booing him every time he touched the ball. But he's, I think I think he was actually really, really loving it. But he's constantly talking as and well, he's constantly, he, yeah, he's constantly, yeah, yeah, he's So basically, Liverpool have now got this general in defence they've been lacking for such a long time. And this is in a game where I think the other Liverpool defenders had problems in their games. I thought Matip in the first half was 
bad to the point of careless, uh, or maybe the other way around. Uh, Robertson got caught out twice. Uh, Trent Alexander-Ireland wasn't tight enough on his side. Liverpool rectified this problems at half-time and completely suffocated Southampton. But the way Southampton capitulated in the second half, and this is what Pellegrino said after the game, I think the worst thing about the defeat was just how we could just this, this second half. Mm. And to be honest, the atmosphere, so listening to the fans um, in the second half, I mean, yeah, I know it was cold, but the whole place just died. And every time he made a sub, there was chance of you don't know what you're doing, and there was sighing, and I don't really think he has the crowd with him anymore. And when I was looking at him on the touchline, Pellegrino was like that dad in the park on a Saturday with lots of boys running around. He's sort of trying to get them to do stuff, but they're not doing it, and they're getting beaten by much better boys. And it was just it just looked quite amateurish, to be honest. But also afterwards, Daniel, coming out and saying that the character... He didn't have the character from his team mm. in that second half. That's basically sticking your hands up and saying that they're not playing for me. Yeah, and that's that, uh, we know that's kind of the final throw of the dice PR-wise from a manager to, to pin it on the players and it probably means he hasn't got long. Until now, he's kind of survived by winning one in five or one in six and just just holding off disaster. But Southampton are going nowhere but, but down at the moment. Um, every team around them is winning a, apart from them, basically, and, and West Brom. So, yeah... I think they'll probably make a change, but there's no obvious firefighter until the end of the season. They they seem to have scratched around for an entire summer and then been convinced by Pellegrino that he was this upgrade on Puel's football and, and he's a downgrade. Has, hasn't he kind of been given a free pass, though, Ian, by, by the fact that the chairman coming out and saying, actually, after post-Van Dijk, it's going to take us about six months to get over losing him and all that happened around whether he's going, whether he's not, he's not going. So he's got this, this ride, hasn't he? Maybe. Um, it, it just feels like this has been coming... For a, for a while with Southampton really because of the way that they they bring these players in and, and move them on and uh, obviously it's been remarkable the way they've been able to replace the number of players that they've lost mainly to Liverpool um, but at the same time dropping below that line intensifies the scrutiny it makes people talk about Southampton and, and what's not happened there this season and what are we now 27 matches into this season and I'm still not 100% sure what Pellegrino Southampton is supposed to look like you know and I think the teams have changed teams have stuck uh, managerial wise and who knows what the formula is going to be to keep these teams up because it's just so it's remarkable and so tight Rafa Benitez is the formula clearly at Newcastle <laughs> that 1-0 win over Manchester United any phone in that you listen to over the past couple of days it's all Manchester United doom and gloom where's the celebration of Newcastle yeah, they, they were absolutely phenomenal to a man. There's been very few... To a man or to one man in particular? No, no, I think... I, well, the, obviously the goalkeeper was brilliant on his debut and it was a kind of, you know, it was a it was a, a debut from heaven and one that will he will struggle to repeat, I suspect. But actually the team performance was brilliant. I think the only, you know, players like Modi Arme and Iosi Perez who over the last few weeks have been given a little bit of criticism for just sort of existing in the Newcastle team rather than really grabbing games... Both of them impacted the game in positive ways. And that's that's what Rafa Benitez wants. It was the perfect Rafa Benitez performance. You know, Jamal Lassell and Florent Leger There the back he were. is. See, I gave you the open goal <laughs> yes. to mention him first off, Mr Nottingham Forest. Yeah, I mean, J- Jamal Lassell has got a special place in my heart anyway. But he he is the best English central defender on current form. There's no doubt about that in the Premier League. He plays for Newcastle, so he gets a lot of chance to, to show off. Uh, and he doesn't play for a big club, so he probably won't get into the England World Cup squad. But you compare him to, to Phil Jones and Chris Smalling yesterday, and there is no comparison. More, most importantly about Lascelles is he rises to every occasion. You know, he was a 22-year-old at Newcastle last time in the Premier League. Rafa Benitez made him club captain after dro- dropping him. And he basically has pulled that side on. And they absolutely love him up there. 
Um, I mean, feel free to argue against him being the greatest currently <laughs> English. Yeah, current, <laughs> current and form. Those were quite, they were quite key words in that Step particular John statement. Terry, yeah. yeah. Uh, for me, though, I, I understand completely the praise of Newcastle, 100%, and it's probably the, the biggest win uh, under Rafa Benitez as well. But I think Manchester United should have won that football match. I think they had more than enough chances to win the game. Um, they, they didn't control it. They weren't particularly dominant. It was nowhere near a classic Manchester United display in any way, shape or form. But Martial should have scored at least once, if not twice, if not three times. Alexis Sanchez, I think, scores that chance where he goes clean through and, and just hesitates nine times out of ten. And I, I just think that, yes, every single defeat for United at the moment and and sort of historically is is scrutinised to, to this level. Um, but they're still second in the table. Um, they're, they're not performing anywhere near as, as well as they can. But I, I just find the reaction at times really, really extreme, to be honest. Um, yes, it's not perfect by any stretch, but they're still ahead of where they were last season. They're still the second best team in the country, according to the table. So, you know, I don't. I, I think they could have won that game quite easily yesterday. Could but, they? I mean, Jose comes out afterwards and says they, given them ten hours, they wouldn't have scored. I mean, I was just going to ask: Do you think this was the same starting eleven they had against Spurs? Mm. Do you think they played better this week, or they played better against Spurs? I mean, I know different level of opposition, and but for me. There wasn't enough in either performance. There wasn't enough from Pogba, of course, this time. I think Pogba, as you were saying, was likely injured. He's injured, yeah. yeah. Um, but Do you not think there was enough yesterday? The balance of chances, they, they had better chances than Newcastle. I think, I mean, it should be said that Newcastle should have had a first-half penalty. And it should also be said that teams in the relegation zone, or 17th or whatever, you're going to need a bit of luck when you play Manchester United. Um, Newcastle, but Rafa Benitez knew that. That's why he set up to defend the game. And, and you're right, they had, a, you know, they had plenty of chances. But... Mourinho knows more than anyone that he's going to be judged on results as much as performances because that's what being Manchester United manager than, means. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and they've already lost as many games as they did last season when they finished sixth. And I, they still have to play the top six four times. Yeah. Like Liverpool only have mm. to play top six twice, including United. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, I, don't get me wrong. Like I said, I don't think it's perfect by any stretch. I don't think this is vintage Manchester United by by any means. However, um, the, there's a cold hard fact of the league table. And, and I just felt yesterday as well that, yes, they weren't great, but look at the chances, look at what they created in that game. And and this is a st- and for me, they're still trying to find the right formula going forward as well. It doesn't quite feel yet that with Alexis Sanchez in there, Mourinho has quite worked out exactly how to piece all these things mm-hmm. together. As talented as Alexis Sanchez is, and, and as great a signing that uh, I believe it was for Manchester United as well, it has given him a problem because he's now got three players who are all favoured in that in that left forward position in in Alexis Sanchez, in Anthony Martial and in Marcus Rashford. You can argue whether it's their best positions and, and all that, but Mourinho has favoured using those three in that position. And there's still no one really sort of taking control of the right wing. Jesse Lingard's been been decent in the number ten position. Um he's he's been better than the the other options there certainly, mm. but it still to me doesn't feel like that's been quite worked out yet. That can be a criticism as well of Jose Mourinho, by the way, that that hasn't been worked out because, you know, signing Sanchez, you'd think would improve Manchester United's attack, but just at the minute, it doesn't quite feel like it has. 
those the answers to the questions I was about to ask you. So well done. Uh, Reggie says on Twitter, <laughs> how much of Newcastle's win over United was down to Benitez tactics or Mourinho's seeming inability to motivate a team, develop a style of play and give players the confidence they're required. You can take the answers out of anything that, that Ian just said. And can Pogba ever be the marquee player that Man United wants or must he always be surrounded by greatness like at Juve? That's at the front three. Juventus, should we talk about them next? The Champions League on its way. Tweet us at The Totally Football Show and find us on Facebook, also at The Totally Football Show. The Totally Football Show in the company of Daniel Story, Ian Irving, Sasha Gorinov and me, Caroline Barker. Champions League, although I do want the side issue of nicknames, which we've kind of been going over the past few weeks. Sasha, I'm told you, you've come with a whole basket full of Russian nicknames and this will become clear, hopefully, possibly, by the time you read them out. Uh, well, yeah, I had a look. Um... And I don't, I'm not sure that Russians are very strong on the funny ones. I mean, Spartak, <laughs> Moscow, yeah, just, yeah, Russians just aren't funny. We were just comparing uh, them yeah. after there. <laughs> yeah. They can lay that over. Go on then. Um, I mean, Spartak, Moscow are the meat because they used to be, uh, back in the 20s, they used to be supported by the Butchers Cooperative. And uh, they're known as the meat, the pigs, and they embrace this and they give the best player the, uh, the golden boar. But I think the best one for me is probably... Um, uh, Zenit St. Petersburg, because they're known as the bags. Not as money bags, but as plastic bags. Because when they won the title in 1984, which was the first and only pre Gazprom League title, they produced a load of plastic bags which said Zenit 1984 champions of the USSR. And the reason this is significant is because in the Soviet Union, there was a real shortage of plastic bags. And not because of all of the environment. I just didn't think, they just couldn't make them. So basically, the whole of St. Petersburg was flooded by these champions' bags. All, um, and everywhere the fans went, they were all, all carrying these ridiculous bags. So since then, the moniker stuck. And it's probably a little bit nicer than the other moniker for Zenit, which is the Tramps. Well, bags. No, I'm not going to make any comment on that at all. And perhaps just leave it. But, but you did find that... Semi-amusing. Uh, at the Totally <laughs> Show for your, for your <laughs> nicknames. Uh, and if you two would like to laugh with Sasha. A meat I approve of, because it's never a proper football match until you have a meat raffle at half-time, is it? No. Uh, Champions <laughs> League then, j- just me, non-league football. Uh, Juve up against Spurs. Should we start there? We mentioned that, that Toby's not got on that, that plane, but Tottenham, Daniel, when you look at them, they, they've got strength. The group, two tricky ties at they, they got through. You look mm. at Juventus, arguably, I think tough one, but Spurs got enough. I Yeah, I think it will be tight. Um, Pochettino, after the game, spoke about you know, this is his Spurs in the, in the you know in their best mood since he arrived, and he, he pointed out the games that they played very well in. They haven't played particularly well in in Premier League away games against the best teams, but the Champions League has been their antidote. They they won in Dortmund, they they drew in Madrid. Um, they go to a Juventus side who are incredibly miserly. Um, they've won eight straight in Serie A. I think they last conceded at home on December the ninth. And Giorgio Chiellini, by the way, is bang up for playing Harry Kane. So that's going to be an, that's going to be an amazing battle to watch. Um, the, we, our only doubts about Kane are his performances against the best outside of the Premier League. I don't know if Chiellini's the best. I mean, Ramos, PK, Bonucci, but he's up there. Um, so that'll be brilliant to watch. But yeah, Spurs, like Liverpool, I think, are kind of the sort of unknown slash dark horses of this Champions League draw because nobody wants to face them. No. Um, the ceiling of their potential a la Liverpool, if everything clicks, is as high as anyone else in Europe, I believe. It's just that, you know, the the floor is also goes pretty low when they when they shoot themselves in the foot, particularly Liverpool. Um, 
so yeah, I, this is uh, alongside PSG Real Madrid. I think this is the this is the tie of the round. How to break Juve down then? Beat uh, Fiorentina two 0 Friday night. Just one goal conceded. Yeah, sixteen games. That's the question, I guess, for Pochettino. It is. Yeah, I just think those displays, like Daniel was saying, away at Dortmund and away at Real Madrid, mm. will have given so much confidence to that Tottenham team because there is these question marks about them performing uh, away against difficult opposition, and I, I just think the maturity that that showed in the competition from Tottenham is encouraging going into the latter stages. And I think if you look at Tottenham in Europe last season, uh, which was ridiculous, and look at how quickly, as you said, they matured, I think it's excellent work by the manager. I think they almost look more mature than Arsenal did most of the seasons in the Champions League, and Arsenal Wenger's had 20 years of that. Um, however, about Juventus and conceded goals, I think there was uh, knives were out again. Um, after the Fiorentina game because Fiorentina waited for about three minutes to take a penalty that was overturned because a player was active and inactive and eventually they asked for a screen and yes, so maybe there could have been a second goal they've conceded in like 15 games but it wasn't and they won 2-0. Spurs' issue is that Juventus don't just not concede goals. They don't, apart from your example, generally give away chances mm, and, and the one criticism of Spurs' attack is they create a heck of a lot and Kane's kind of shoot-on-site policy might just have to be tweaked a little bit for Europe because they're not going to be able to create as many chances as they do and they're probably going to have to try and take their chances or create their chances closer to goal than than they generally do at home because they're not going to get 17, 18, 19 shots against Juventus, which is sometimes what it takes for them to score two or three. Uh, the two Jameses, Jimbo and Horncastle, preview this tie in the latest edition of Golazzo. So download that now. Why don't you? Uh, Porto or the Dragons, that one was just for you, Sash. Liverpool, this, this, is, going to be a, uh, this is on Wednesday and this is going to be a case of who can score more than the other, isn't it? Which I know clearly is, is the game of football. <laughs> but this could be 22-21. I mean, it could be tremendous fun. I think a lot of Liverpool watchers, let's say, were very happy uh, when Liverpool drew Porto. But I think um, Porto are sort of rebuilding this season, I think, from sort of lack of success the last three, four years. There's actually a very good article by Gabriele Marcotti today in the Times um, where he kind of unpicks the whole Porto rebirth the fact that they were sort of put in a very difficult position by the abolition of the third-party ownership in 2014. And uh, what they've done this season is recall a lot of these players from loans. For example, Marega, I think, was at Guimarães. Um, obviously, Abubakar, the scorer of the win in the, in the African Cup of Nations last year in the final. He was recalled from Besiktas from an excellent season. And now, and obviously, they have Brahimi. And I think those guys have scored, what, 50 goals this season between them. So, potentially, a very, very attacking. I was also looking at the... Last few games, um, and at the weekend they beat Chavez 4-0 uh, with Brahimi rested, Abubakar had a bit of a knock, so I think he'll be back. So potentially very high-scoring games. It's one thing, um, as far as fans are concerned with the way leg, United have a similar problem. Uh, high ticket prices uh, at Dragao, uh, Liverpool fans were charged €75, Euros, uh, which is a lot, whereas Porto members bought most of the tickets for €25. Euros. Liverpool didn't get anywhere with that. I know United had a thing with Sevilla. I think Sevilla were charging them similar amounts or even more so they're charging them back I don't think Liverpool are doing that but it's I don't know it's yeah it's it's still Liverpool fans feel that they're being basically used because they're you know, Porto know that Liverpool buy all the tickets mm. and then they can charge them whatever they want. It's a bit petty, isn't it, when, you, when they then charge them the same on the way back? Well, but you have to make a stand. I think Liverpool fans have a bit of a problem that the club kind of went, yeah, we're talking, yeah, we're saying, uh-uh, and then now we're still So have they to want them seven. to stand up and flex? Yeah, yeah I don't think so. I'm kind of uncomfortable with the answer to sorting out any high ticket prices to charge other fans who, let's be honest, didn't set those ticket prices 
in- increasingly higher prices. But yeah. it's about making headlines and it's about making those headlines to lean on UEFA to, to actually do something about it. And it's then the subsidise the travel. It's the only thing they had a the power over, wasn't it? Because yeah. I think United had, had spoken to to Sevilla about changing the ticket pricing. They wouldn't change it. So that was their only way, they felt, of of, of reacting like we're suggesting to make the type of headlines that to, you know, make you for maybe ensure this doesn't happen again in future. It does feel a little bit uncomfortable charging other football fans more money as well to stop other fans being charged more money. But clearly, it's an issue that that needs sorted. As, as someone that wants to do her thesis on ticket prices, I would love to discuss this for the next half hour. I ended up doing it on War of the Worlds book covers, but that's another story. Similar Let, issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. As is goalkeepers, because this clearly is who's going to flap most. Although we've already done half an hour on on all being well at. The back now for Liverpool? Well, the question is still, I don't think anyone is sure whether it's going to be Mignolet or Karius. I think Mignolet is out, so I don't think there's any need to play Mignolet. So I think you just persist with Karius. But certainly the Champions League in the autumn when Karius was playing, he was being compared to a hologram because everything just went through him. Um, I think he's a much different goalkeeper now, uh, obviously with Van Dijk. And I think Liverpool won't necessarily be as porous at the back. However, for the way like Jan is missing, so Henderson's back in, and I think Jan has been able to raise his game for the big games. Uh, these recent months, I know he's supposed to supposedly leaving at the end of the season, but he certainly big game performances haven't haven't lacked for me. Um, so I think that could potentially be an issue. It was more Casillas I, want, I wanted to talk about, but but we've got Ricky Van Wolfswinkel coming up. So let's do Basel City, shall we? Uh, that's a Tuesday game as well in the Champions League. Ian, City will win. Yeah. Oh. Simple as that, really, to be honest. Um, Do they not take a look over the shoulder and worry about what they did against Manchester United, Basel, that is, and yeah. City? Yeah, yeah. They, they have had some, some, some good nights, haven't they, against Manchester United in, in recent history. But I, I think Manchester City will just, will just breeze through this, to be honest. It, it might be famous last words from me, maybe, but um, I just think they're better. Um, and I, I just see this as being one of the ties in the last 16, unlike Juventus and Tottenham, that's very easy to call. Good. Yeah. That means we can talk about... The big one then, can't we? Mm. Which is, of course... PSG Real Madrid. Well, Thank Real goodness Madrid, you went PSG. for that one. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, it's Zidane's final stand. Um, he knows as well as anyone how important the Champions League could be because obviously La Liga's gone. Um, if they became the first team since Bayern in 76 to win three in a row, he would have created a European dynasty at a time when people were worried about anyone ever, you know, literally defending the Champions League once. Um it's it's a brilliant, it's an absolutely brilliant tie because it is pre-draw favourites against holders. It is new money against kind of established elite. It's Neymar against future club. Um, so yeah, it's I, I, I mean it's, it's it's obviously the tie of the round. The the thing that Real will have in the back of their minds is that they probably need to win that home leg by two goals. Uh, I think PSG have scored sixty five in fourteen at home this season. So over four a game. Now, I know plenty of those are against middling French teams, but they also scored three against Bayern. I think Real Madrid will need to score twice and or have a two-goal lead or win 1-0 and kind of hope to hold on. But Real have not kept... I think Real have... Mm, I think, don't think Real have kept a clean sheet at home since they beat Sevilla in December. They have been so porous at the Bernabeu. They scored 12 in the last two games, by the way, but they've been so porous at home. And if, and if Neymar and Bappe and Cavani turn up then I'd just see PSG going through and that being the end of Zidane if, if Zidane's going anyway does he go full on I mean I don't mean full on headbutting World Cup final full on but, <laughs> but does he just go right nothing to lose well I think uh, they played really well at the weekend I mean t- in terms of conceding goals in the league I don't think it matters because I mean they won 5-2 it could have been 10-0 by half time against Sociedad um, mm. 
I, th- I think what is important for him is like you know Ronaldo scoring again and seems to be in a better mood. But again, he's missing ridiculous chances. He could have had six against Sociedad and he missed like open goals. Um, I think it's the question of you know how I mean does he go three up front with Bale? Is it a bit too much? But also, I wonder with PSG attitude because they're breezing through the league. And I mean, against Toulouse, they won one nil. Um, but I mean, they, they would they were just having fun. If they have so much fun most weeks, can they really motivate themselves for the big serious one? Because I think Ligue 1 is way too easy for them. Teams like Toulouse, you know, with Yaya Sanogo up front, you know, what can they potentially put up against PSG? Absolutely nothing. They have a much longer bench, I think, than Real Madrid as well. So I think on paper PSG looks stronger, but I, I would question the, the motivation. You know, if Neymar has easy games every week and suddenly he's up against people hacking him to death and, you know, in a really, really harsh environment. And to be honest, you know, if I'm a Real Madrid defender, I'll take turns kicking him. I know that this isn't the right thing to do, but you need to go... Sergio Ramos is ahead of you. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> and kicking yeah. and then diving probably. Yeah. Sergio Ramos yeah. made the kick. <laughs> like I said, Fulon Zidane World yeah, yeah, Cup so, final. Yeah. Uh, one word then, who wins it? PSG the tie draw on the night I, I still think Real might I know you said one word but this for me the most interesting thing about it is what happens with Cristiano Ronaldo for me because he's not as good as he was however this is exactly the type of occasion that usually he stands up on his pedestal and just says right my game my tie my ball my goal and just completely dominates scores a hat-trick or, or scores a vital goal to get Real Madrid through I know you wanted a word yeah so it's my right. word You've is already told Ronaldo. me is rubbish. So, uh, <laughs> well, well you, you are putting words in my mouth a little bit there, but yeah. PSG just about. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if you could just say hacked again, Sasha, because that was that was a beautiful moment. Uh, talking of beautiful moments, did you take part in the inaugural Totally Football quiz on Facebook last week? I had a look. Good. Amazingly, nothing broke. No one died. So there's another one coming up this Friday at 12.30 GMT. Some of the prizes that we gave away last time included a copy of Football Manager 18, a 94-95 AC Milan home shirt. So what we'll be giving away this week, you have to head to facebook.com slash the Totally Football Show to find out. Listeners, starting up the Totally Football Show was a hairy business. Fortunately, Cornerstone have been with us every step of the way. Why? Because they're in the business of making hairy things smooth, like your face. Cornerstone's award-winning blades will give you the smoothest shave possible. And their range of balms, creams and exfoliators are all environmentally friendly, alcohol-free and suitable for the most sensitive skin. Head to cornerstone.co.uk slash totally to see the range for yourself, get £10 off your first order and have it delivered right to your door. And you'll find out why tens of thousands of men have switched over to Cornerstone. So we've done the Champions League, we've done the Premier League, not quite all the bottom, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, what about in the Championship this weekend? What didn't happen in the Championship this weekend? Sunderland clearly dropping out again, going back door to back door to back door until they get a 3-3 at Bristol City. Yeah, they. it was a remarkable comeback and one that genuinely could change the season. I know it's very easy to say that, but and Sunderland have been wretched at times under Chris Common, but the mood has clearly changed. The, the supporters are still resigned to the worst that's coming, but the mood has changed under Coleman. And there are teams in the Championship, and I'll mention no names, who are sinking like stones at the moment, and Sunderland will fancy their chances of catching them. Um, but, but what Bristol City doing in that second half? Lee Johnson comes out afterwards, doesn't he, and says, we, we completely got our tactics wrong. We should have said 3 nils enough. Yeah, they were a shambles. Bristanbul, 
apparently already been coined for that one. Yeah, no, no. good. It's poor. Uh, Sheffield United ruining Paul Heckingbottom's first game in charge of Leeds. Finished 2-1 at, at Bramall Lane. Leeds, 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 Ian? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I enjoyed that. And Aston Villa, John Terry, who got a little mention earlier on, he played in front, did you see the stat, about 52 times this weekend, the largest home crowd in a league match that he's played in front of as Aston Villa. Oh, really? Yeah. That is a lovely stat, isn't it? What was that? Say that again. Apparently. The largest home card he's ever played in front of. I mean, I read it, it might not be true. Is it 52 Villa Park? I thought Villa Park was about 45. Uh, No, no, 42. Yeah, but Ah, 40 Stamford Bridge. Okay, just bigger. Okay, We'll just enjoy that stat for a moment. There was also um, a line about him being the most, most clean sheets in English football history now as well, John Terry, I think. But I was really happy for Steve Bruce. Really, really pleased for Steve Bruce because... Anyone who's been through what he's been through, which I'm sure you know, a lot of people have, to be able to, to show up for work just a, a few days after, um, and a very public public workplace as well, by the way, uh, and a very important occasion for the club as well. Uh, I was just really pleased for him, to be honest, because um, from a personal perspective, taking away all the, the, the football rivalries and whatever else, for, for a human being to go through that and... and and appear the way he did at the weekend and to get the result that he did, I was really pleased for him. Yeah, and Villa up to second for the first time. That's the Grade A Championship chat done. Can we just quickly ask about Forest Hull? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I said I would not refer to a club by name, um, the club that's sinking like a stone in the Championship, and that's because they don't deserve to be mentioned today. Ian McIntosh and co will be telling you much more about the club that doesn't deserve to be mentioned on the Totally Football League show that's on Tuesday. Bottom of the league, we kind of done, but Southampton, Stoke and West Brom. West Brom, Chelsea, all eyes on Mr Pardew. Where's it gone wrong for, for West Bromwich Albion? Seemingly, this is the right time to go to Chelsea if ever there's a, there's a right time. And if you want a kick, Daniel, to get you going, then it's going and winning at Stamford Bridge. Yeah, it is. West Brom have, have, have been better under Pardew. They're creating more chances than they were under Pulis. They're actually conceding fewer shots than they were under Pulis, which is probably more surprising. Um, but the honest answer is they just haven't improved enough and they were pretty wretched to start with. Clubs around them are winning, they're drawing. Um, they've still only won three league games this season. Uh, and Pardew kind of shot himself in the foot in the last game against against Southampton by by dropping Jay Rodriguez, who was in form. I know he's kind of under a bit of a cloud at the moment anyway. Um, but yeah, they dropped him for the game. He went with Daniel Sturridge, who's basically their kind of roll of the dice gamble in January. And, and any club in the bottom half would have welcomed Sturridge through the door, of course. But yeah, they've just not improved enough. And this season, it never felt with how tight it would be that any club would get properly cut adrift. But mm. if West Ham lose tonight, then... They're seven points from safety with 11 games left and they've, they've still got to play three hard teams at home. And yeah, that's that might be that for them. The, the little glimmers of hope that, that came for them in the results over the weekend. Stoke 1-1 with Brighton. The glimmer, though, comes in this missed penalty from Charlie Adam. What goes on in those final few minutes, Sasha, for those that... that well, probably have seen it because it's been everywhere. But but what are they doing? Charlie Adams playing like a pub footballer, basically. Um, it's if you look at the you know okay penalty save fine, but the way he slowly ambles in towards the rebound. Oh no, he's been brought down. It's it was just slow. He should have just put it in. And he takes such such a long time after uh, to to get there. But also the way he takes the subsequent corner to cash him out, that's like a wily old pro thing to do. So I really really enjoyed that. And obviously it's another corner gets cleared off the line. But that finale. Sort of this. This is, I think, maybe sometimes, you know, they show the Premier League around the world, you know, United, yeah. Liverpool, stuff like that. But they should also show this. 
So this is also what happened in the, the last two. The petulance of Hesse and uh, yeah, just the, the just the whole chaos, the petulance, the slowness. This guy plays in the Premier League, yet he nearly then catches out the keeper. The whole ungodly mess at the bottom of the table towards the end of one of those six pointers. So um, yeah, I mean it, it was it was a fun finale. Um, Two very fine goals as well before all the scrappiness came in. Uh, I I love it when Shakira hits the ball from us outside the box with his left foot. It's just it's beautiful. Um, and obviously Skerda with another lovely goal. Um, I think neither side will really be happy with that because I think both teams needed to win that really. Uh, perhaps stuck more than Brighton. Uh, but uh, yeah, very enjoyable. It's a very championship game, I thought. <laughs> Has anyone ever yeah. scored a penalty after arguing with a teammate to take? <laughs> but why do that? I mean, from, from Hesse's point of view, he's been brought down. He's got the the bit between his teeth. He wants to go and take it. But is it acknowledged that Charlie Adams, the, the guy that takes all yeah, the penalties, Charlie Adams, our penalty yeah. taker, and if. And if you speak to Paul Lambert, he'll tell you that Charlie Adams is our penalty taker. And, and Hesse has been out of Stokes' team for a couple of months, partly personal reasons. His child was born prematurely. He's been back in back home. But he was disciplined. His last game he played for Stoke, he was disciplined by Mark Hughes for leaving the ground early and petulantly. And and the move, the low move, has not gone well. Um, and I, I just think that I, I actually wrote a piece on it, and and I was surprised because Stoke fans kind of responded to saying blaming Charlie Adam for it and I, I kind of understand that because he missed the penalty but surely you can understand that it might not be helpful to a situation that is already high pressured mm. to have a teammate try and steal the ball off you and have to talk him out of it and therefore feel his kind of breath on the back of your neck while you're taking the penalty as well it, it's just ludicrous petulance I'd have to give it to Hesse to be honest uh, when someone's arguing that even if I am the penalty taker if someone's arguing that hard you're in a situation there where you're on a bit of a hide into nothing in a way. If you put the ball in the back of the net, of course, it's arguments over. But if someone's actually wanting a penalty that much, I'd have just give it him. My, my worry with Hesse is that, and this is you know probably harsh, but my worry is that he didn't want that penalty to, to give Stoke a victory. My worry is he wanted that penalty because he hasn't scored in a long time and he wanted to score a goal, which... Okay, fine. Strikers have always been selfish and have been successful doing so, but it's not its not quite the right way to go about dragging a team out of trouble. When they've got, is it Leicester away, Southampton, Manchester City, Everton to come, do you, do you drop him, Hesse? Well, is it, is he causing problems? He's, not, he's hardly played this season anyway, yeah. so, you know. Yeah. I would just do him. what you've done. I wouldn't drop him, no, because he's, you know, perhaps it's not showing itself in the in the right way, but... There's clearly a, a passion there, a fire there. Maybe there's a frustration as well because he's been out of the team for so long. And, you know, Stoke are going to need that those sort of qualities to, to get them out of the situation they're in now. And he's, he's certainly a talented footballer as well. Mm. If it be, becomes more counterproductive, then obviously there's a, different, there's a different situation. And I can understand why people would be annoyed at the way he behaved at the weekend. But... Um, you know they're going to have to harness these these types of uh, of emotions into winning football matches. Really, that's the challenge for for Lambert. Oh, the, the challenge that's been met by Swansea beating Burnley by a goal to nil. There was also the win for West Ham over Watford, but Huddersfield four, Bournemouth one. Mm-hmm. How key is that match going to be for for Huddersfield? Is that is that the result that keeps them up? I don't know if it's the result that keeps them up, but it's certainly necessary and at the necessary time. Because I mean, believe it or not. There have been a lot of grumblings in West Yorkshire about David Wagner. Um, he is the man that got them up, but we're kind of judged by recent performance more than extended. And, you know, a lot of Huddersfield's fans, their argument is, well, we're here now, so there's no point just making up the numbers and saying, oh, aren't we lucky to be here? We might as well give it our best shot. And there were doubts about Wagner's, uh, his tactics over the last couple of months throughout this miserable run, but they were absolutely brilliant um, against Bournemouth. They're, they're, I've been, there's a lot of, 
great atmospheres at Premier League grounds, but there's nothing quite like the noise that Huddersfield fans make when they score an early goal. And it does drag that team on. The 12th man is a horrendous cliche, but it works there because their ground was bouncing and... They've signed Alex Pritchard as this number 10 so that Aaron Moy doesn't have to do absolutely everything in midfield. And he looked brilliant against Bournemouth. Uh, Steve Mooney looked better than he has again. And and when Schindler and Moy play and play well, they've got enough at home. Now got their seven wins out of the target, 12 that he said at, mm. at the start of the season. And they face teams in the bottom half of the table in six of their next seven league games. If, if I had to do the old tie your arm behind your back and pick one team out of, say, that bottom, well, from Brighton down, who who's definitely going to stay up, would Huddersfield be in there? Uh, Swansea would be Swansea, my team Swansea, to definitely yeah. stay up. Yeah, Or Palace. I think Palace have got enough as well. Zaha's fitness is, is an issue there. Bournemouth, though, can I just talk about them for a moment? No football team in the world, I think, ever confuses me more than Bournemouth. <laughs> I, week by week, I have no idea what to expect from them at all. They continually, uh, continually surprise me in victories that they get and defeats that they, they suffer as well. I just never seem to quite work out Bournemouth. I, I, I might be being unfair, but week upon week, I'll look at them and there's just nothing predictable about them. And I, I celebrate it. It's fantastic. It's fascinating. You can go to Huddersfield one week and do that. You can go to Chelsea the week before and do what they did there as well. I, I just find them really confusing. For Bournemouth, kind of read Arsenal and, and the chat we had at the start of the show. We'll More just, confusing we'll just, than we'll Arsenal. We'll just swap yeah. those two around. I, yeah. I think you have a situation there where a manager can just work, but he works with a, you know, with a certain level of players. And I think... If you look at the performances since they've gone up, there are spikes in the season where he really gets like seven or eight really good games out of them. I think that possibly takes a loss out of the players uh, because I think they're playing better than what they are at that moment. And then perhaps they have a game against Huddersfield because they've overachieved in the previous weeks. I mean, if you look at the way Howe came up with the 3-4-3 and it works so well against Arsenal, works so well against Chelsea. Uh, but th- this time I think they got a little bit confused because I think they got caught out early and they weren't sure whether to go back to four or to three. So they were basically muddled, I think, for the rest of the game. But from Bournemouth's point of view, I mean, they had this fine run of uh, without defeat in seven. They were the form team. And now, I mean, if they lose a couple of games, they're going to be dragged back all the way back down. I mean, as, as you were saying um, earlier in the show. So it's, it's interesting as well that this run came at halfway point. Previous seasons, they usually get to game 26 in a not very good position. And then they go on this little run. So I'd be very keen, I haven't been able to find out, very keen how they approach this season differently to the previous ones because they started off worse, had this good run in the middle and I'm very curious to see how they get through the last 10 games. So if I had to tie your arm behind your back and said from Bournemouth down, (laughs) uh, let's say it won't be Huddersfield, it would be fun really to mention a few more of the other games that I did kind of just gloss over. Do you have a burning desire, bearing in mind that your team talk half-time with Aguero and and, and Sasha's custard tarts, (laughs) any other team you really want to focus on before I let you go? Uh, Just mention to the very angry Everton fans uh, who were still angry after the 3-1 win uh, because of the 5-1 at Arsenal the week before. I think the Sam explanations are wearing a bit thin. Also, I thought Sam looked very sheepish uh, in his post-match interview after the 3-1, despite the fact that they just won. And all this talk of Everton fans waking up the following day and being happy, mm, they might not be quite true. I think Everton fans are beginning to ask quite a few questions because with Sam, if the results aren't there, mm, there isn't really much else. Daniel? Uh, Burnley haven't won in two months. 
Uh, they're still seventh in the Premier League. That says something, and I'm not sure it's a positive thing about the Premier League, but they are still seventh and haven't won in two months. Yeah, that just says how good they were for me. <laughs> yeah. you know, they, they did exceptionally well. Ian had some very... Premier League TV. No, 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 no. They've had some very, very, very difficult fixtures, a difficult run. Uh, even going to Swansea at the weekend, who, who looked completely rejuvenated uh, under Carvajal as well. But they have got some games coming up now where you'd look at it and think, mm, I can see them picking up again. It's 11 matches in all comps that they've not won. Um, but I, I was at the game against Manchester City a couple of weekends ago and they were actually pretty good, to be fair to them. Um, once they'd got a grip of, of what City were doing, which it did take a while and obviously had the Sterling miss and it could have been different, etc., etc. But... Um, it did give them a lot of confidence. It was quite a tight match against Swansea as well. So I, I don't see them suffering any more than they've already suffered, if you know what I mean. It says a lot about their style that if Swansea had scored another goal on Saturday, Burnley would have been the lowest scorers in the Premier League in seventh, yeah. which is remarkable, really. I mean, all your stats are now just blowing my mind. <laughs> that uh, that, that's the football then. Time to get the odds from Paddy Power with Ian McIntosh. Thanks, Caroline. I'm on the line with Paddy Power. Paddy, how are you? I'm doing great, Ian. How are you getting on? I'm brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Filled with the joy that comes from three wins from three. Um, but enough about Southend. Let's talk odds. Um, there's a lot of people scoring roughly the same number of goals. What can we get on Harry Kane, Mo Salah and Sergio Aguero sharing the golden boot? Kind of like Owen Dublin and Sutton did 20 years ago. Yeah. Good knowledge. Good oh, knowledge, yeah. Because it's, it's, a, it's a funny one uh, because, like you said, everyone's kind of banging them in. Like, Kane is obviously... I wouldn't say he's the sexiest one, but he kind of is in terms of talkability. Everyone's just talking about Harry Kane because every week he seems to score the first goal every single week for Spurs. And you know, every time they need a big one like they did at the weekend, he he, he comes up. like So I, you would have thought that he's going to be a, a good bit ahead of the other lads. But then, of course, Salah keeps doing it and he seems full of confidence as well. Aguero is Aguero. So it's, uh, yeah, it's not nailed on by any chance it's going to be all finished the same. But it's 33 to 1 at the three of them end the season the same goals. Nice. Now, Tottenham had quite a decent weekend, didn't they? What can we get on them to finish third, but with Arsenal finishing sixth? That's pretty much the, well, it's the almost the dream result. The dream result is them finishing first, and for Spurs fans, but uh, yeah, them finishing third and Arsenal finishing sixth is uh, very, very possible. There's about twenty percent chance for that. About seven to two. All right, uh, Liverpool. They not got it in them to win the league, obviously, but the Champions League. They've done this before, and with worse teams. When you think back to two thousand and five, Champions League gets going on Tuesday. What can we get on Liverpool winning it? Yeah, there, like, there's a squeak, and it, like it, it, because it's been done before. I think at this stage, when they did it the last time in Istanbul, at this stage the Champions League, they're probably about twenty-five to one or thirty-three to one. Right now, they're fourteen to one to do it, but it would be very Liverpool to uh, not make the top four but win the Champions League or something and qualify that way which would be which would be perfectly fine Oh god yes and talking about the Champions League Real Madrid Paris Saint-Germain Real Madrid in terrible state on the home front can they make up for it here? Yeah I'm not sure they're quite Liverpool from that perspective because they're not used to being rubbish at home uh, or like being inconsistent at home should I say and uh, and then good in the Champions League so I'd say they're serious in introspection going on in uh, in Madrid at the moment and PSG are obviously they're phenomenal and I know the French league isn't the most competitive but in the Champions League they've been awesome as well so they got to be favourites you've got to nearly, nearly back they're 17-10 to 10 PSG away Real Madrid are 7-5 to 5. so actually Real are favourites uh, for that match which is hard to fathom you can find out all these odds and more at paddypower.com. This is the bit I meant to read quickly. The T's and C's. 18 plus only. BeGambleAware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. 
That's been the Totally Football Show. Thank you for your company. Thanks also to Ian, to Daniel and to Sasha. I've been Caroline Barker. We're back on Thursday. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. That was pretty good, wasn't it? Not nearly enough football league, though. Why don't you give the Totally Football League show a try? You'll find us on Audio Boom, iTunes, all the other places you get your podcasts.